Well, we are uh, at, at an interesting point in Daniel. If you're just joining us for the first time, or maybe just uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've been studying through the book of Daniel. And we're at a point now in chapter 5 where we're actually seeing an end of the Babylonian kings. Daniel, the book of Daniel is going to keep going, but we're seeing the last Babylonian king before Persia takes over Babylon. So just as Babylon had conquered Jerusalem, had conquered Judah, now we're going to see Persia conquer Babylon. There, there's always a bigger fish, right? And we've learned some really wonderful things in this book so far. We have seen the faithfulness of God's people in the midst of exile. We have seen even more clearly the faithfulness of God to be with his people in exile and in those difficult times. We've even seen the incredible mercy of God given to someone like Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king. We're going to see something uh, today that, that may be a little jarring or surprising to you. We're actually going to see the judgment of God. And we're going to hopefully learn that it's that judgment that is supposed to lead us to repentance. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read Daniel chapter 5. We'll read the whole chapter. Uh, or you can follow along on the screen right up here. King Belshazzar, and by the way, Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar, and we have this king named Belshazzar. They're not the same person. So this is the king that we're talking about here, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in all the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. And his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, or queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will be shown the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. 
I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in all the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said, to, said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the, with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of the kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple the chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we are thankful even for stories of judgment. We ask that you would drive us to the cross today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our Redeemer, it is in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, let me just ask you this question. What do you do with stories of judgment? How do you handle a story like the one I just read? How do we emotionally intellectually, theologically handle stories of judgment like the one we just heard? How do you handle it, you know, when you hear that story or see on Facebook of that high school friend of yours who always kind of had a hard time in high school and is still having a hard time, and that's kind of just the end? 
How do you handle it when the kid that you hear of who grew up in hard times and has uh, turned to a life of crime is finally thrown in jail or maybe is killed in a gang fight? How do you handle the stories with the bad endings is really my question. Well, I want you to just take that question, put it in the back of your mind, hold it there for just a second. Because uh, let's go over this story really quickly first. In fact, I'd love to give you just kind of a recap of where we are so far in the book of Daniel. Remember, when we open Daniel, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has invaded Judah, has taken over God's people, and has actually taken some of the people back to Babylon with him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, things like gold cups and chalices, that sort of thing. And we've seen actually Daniel in his faithfulness kind of stand up to this king. And of course, we have seen the faithfulness of God throughout the first four chapters. We saw Daniel interpret that dream of the king, and we hear that little message uh, from the Lord that that kingdom is not going to last forever. In fact, we're seeing now that dream come true, aren't we? And then remember uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who wouldn't bow down to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. He throws them in the fire, and of course, God shows up in a big way, doesn't he? He literally shows up in the fire. He's present with his people, even in the difficulty, present to rescue them. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream after that that Daniel interprets. God uses Daniel in incredible ways. And in fact, in this one, we see that, uh, that God actually humbles Nebuchadnezzar in an amazing way. Nebuchadnezzar is proud. But by the end of chapter 4, we see that he's been humbled, and that humbling has led to his repentance. He's been humbled by the Lord, and it has driven him to his knees so that he cries out for God's mercy. Friends, throughout the Bible, throughout all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, and throughout those first four chapters of Daniel, we really do see the Lord's mercy wide, broad, deep, amazing. But now when we get to chapter 5, we take a little bit of a turn. There's a new king in town. It's one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, Belshazzar. And what we read about Belshazzar, actually the only thing that we read about Belshazzar, is that he throws a really big party. And sounds like he throws a pretty good party. He's invited a thousand people to his party. I've never been at a party with a thousand people at it. But everybody's dressed up. The food's coming. The music is kind of pumping. Everybody's dancing. The wine is flowing in this party. It sounds like it's a great time. And then Belshazzar decides, well, you know, let's kick it up even another notch here. He says, go ahead and bring in all of those, you know, cups and chalices and all, that, all the stuff that we stole from the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Bring that in here and we'll drink our wine out of that stuff instead. Now, it's pretty clear actually what he's doing. This is a power move on Belshazzar's part, right? What he's saying is, we're going to abuse the stuff that we took out of that foreign god's house, and what it means is that we're the ones in charge. So we have not only dominated the people, we've dominated their god. Uh, this, is, this is common, actually. This, the, the way that you treat the stuff indicates how you're treating the person whose stuff belongs to, who, the person who belongs to the stuff, who owns the stuff. There it is. Right, I mean, if you walk into your office, you know, one day, on Monday, and your desk and your chair is out in the hall, and there's a box with all your stuff in it, it probably doesn't mean that your boss just doesn't like your stuff. It means that your boss has something to say to you, doesn't it? Or if you come home that night, 
and all of your clothing and your favorite chair and all of your stuff is in the front yard, it probably doesn't mean that your wife is mad at your stuff. It means she has some choice words for you. The way that we treat the person's stuff reflects the way that we think about the person. And that's exactly what Belshazzar is doing here. In front of all of his friends, in front of all the people in the kingdom, what he is saying is, hey, let me just show you who's in charge here. Let me show you who's dominant, and it's not that God that all of those people in Israel used to worship. It's this guy. Of course, that God that all of those people in Israel used to worship steps in at this point, and something crazy happens. Belshazzar, in the middle of his great party, looks over and against the wall where there's a lamp and you can see what's going on in the wall, there is a floating hand without an arm, without a body, and it's writing something on the wall. And you can imagine at this part, it's like the record player scratches, the music stops, everything just kind of stops, just comes to a grinding halt. And uh, Belshazzar, uh, you know, undoubtedly and understandably, is really afraid. In fact, we read in the text that, uh, that his, his, his color changed, that his, that his limbs gave way, that his knees started knocking together, we read in the English. It's interesting, in the original language, the idiom there is that the knots of his joints were loosened. Uh, many scholars actually think that means that he lost control of his bodily functions, if you get my drift. Belshazzar was really, really scared. And so he looks out on this wall, he sees this floating hand that's writing these words that he, he can't understand, he has no idea what's going on, uh, he's totally scared, he's probably wet himself at this point, and so he calls the people that he trusts to come and help him. It's his magicians and enchanters and astrologers and all of these people. Now, if you've been paying attention in the first four chapters of Daniel, you will already realize that these people are not worth whatever he's paying them because they haven't done a single thing in Daniel. They get called every time there's a dream that needs interpreting or every time there's a problem. And guess what? They always come up short. They have not come up with the right answer yet in the book of Daniel, and they don't come up with the right answer in chapter five either. In fact, the people that Belshazzar was trusting to kind of help him make sense of the world actually just leave him even more confused and more frightened. And then finally, his mother comes in. The text says the queen, it's probably the queen mother. All of his wives and concubines, remember, were already there at the feast. And it says that she comes in afterwards. So it's probably either his mother or maybe even his grandmother. And she has a little bit more wisdom than Belshazzar does. And she says, don't you remember? Don't you remember Nebuchadnezzar? Don't you remember Nebuchadnezzar and the problems that he had and the dreams that he had? And remember who he turned to first? All those people who just failed you? And remember who actually came through in this situation? It was Daniel. You should call Daniel. He's actually got something that none of these other guys have. And so that's what Belshazzar does. He calls Daniel in. And it's important, I think, to kind of pause here for a second and note even still his arrogance, even when he's calling Daniel in. What does he say to Daniel? He says, not Oh, Daniel, the one who always has the answer to all of these things, the one who Nebuchadnezzar raised into this incredibly high place in the kingdom, that's not what he says. He says, you're that Daniel, aren't you? That, that exile from Judah that we took. Like, you're that Hebrew slave boy, aren't you? That's the way he starts out addressing him. Again, another power move 
on Belshazzar's behalf. He says, well, here's the thing. If you can interpret this, go ahead. And there's a reward, of course, for you. I'll give you the same reward that I would give anybody else. You'll get a nice you know, wardrobe, and we'll give you a gold chain, and we'll give you a really good job. And Daniel's answer is fascinating because he says, all right, Belshazzar, first, I don't need your money. You can keep it. And secondly, I will interpret the, uh, the, the, the writing on the wall for you. But before I do, let me tell you a story. Sit down for a second. It's a story of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you've heard of him. He was the king before you. And in the story of the man named Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar actually thought a lot of the same things that you think. He thought of himself really highly. He built statues to himself. And you know what happened? Was the most high God, the one who rules all things, the sovereign God over all who raises up kings and takes them down, he humbled him. He brought him to his knees. And Nebuchadnezzar realized who God was, and he finally praised him. And here's an even more interesting part is, Belshazzar, you've heard these stories. You've probably sat on your mom's knee and listened to them. You saw it happen. You know the testimonies, and you still have chosen to forget them. So here's what they mean. Here's what the writing on the wall means. It means basically this. God has weighed you and he has found you lacking. In the ancient world, the way that you would weigh something was that you would put it on a balance, a scale worked with a balance. So if you went to the market and you wanted to buy two pounds of flour, well, they would take the sack of flour and they would put it on one side of the scale, and they would take a two-pound weight and put it on the other side of the scale, and if they balanced, well, then the sack of flour was what you thought it was. It was two pounds, and you would pay the two pounds for it. But if, you know, the weight went down like this and the two pounds was heavier than the bag of flour, then you would know you were being cheated, and that wasn't a full bag. And so what Daniel says to Belshazzar is, the same thing has happened to you, O king. You have been put on the scales, and God's righteousness, holiness, glory has been put on one side. What it means for you to actually live as a human being in the image of your creator has been put on one side. What you have been required of by God's revealed law and by what you even can know of him when you walk outside and you look at the sky and the trees, that's been put on one side. What it means to actually be a king and to lead people, that's been put on one side. And you have been put on the other. And guess what? You have been found wanting. And more than that, the Lord is going to fulfill that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and your kingdom is done. How does that make you feel, I wonder? What do, what do we do with stories of judgment? What do we do when we read a story and we know God's mercy, but it doesn't actually come in that story? We see the judgment come swift, in fact, here. Well, keep that question in the back of your head for just a little longer. Because I want to zoom out just a little bit more big picture and let us understand what's the whole purpose of the book of Daniel. Well, the book of Daniel was written actually to God's people in exile. So the first people that read Daniel, the first audience for Daniel, were these folks who actually were still living under the reign of some sort of foreign government. It was probably Persia at the time. 
And if you're God's people and you're living under the reign of a foreign government, then you need a few things. You need a few reminders, right? You need to know what it's like to live faithfully in that time. You need to be reminded that God is going to be present with you. You need to be reminded of the wonderful mercy of God that is given so freely. But you know what else you need to be reminded of? Is that when you presume upon that mercy, you have put yourself in severe danger. And I love actually the way that God's, God communicates this to his people. But because instead of actually coming to them face to face and saying what is undoubtedly something really hard to hear, he actually kind of moves it to a distance by putting the story in the context of this pagan Babylonian king. Uh, doctors and psychologists will tell you that the, the human brain is so amazing that when it can't handle some sort of news, it's just figured out God has made our brains such that we can kind of like recategorize things. So, for instance, you know, when people go through some intense trauma, oftentimes what happens is that our brains actually kind of just push that aside such that we don't even know that it happens sometimes because it's just too hard to, to see face to face. It's too hard to deal with up close. So our brains kind of push it back to the back so that we don't have to deal with it. This can happen, you know, with a, with a diagnosis, right? Somebody walks into the doctor and the doctor says, you have cancer. And oftentimes, uh, people that, that don't want to deal with that really difficult phrase will actually just kind of pretend like it didn't happen. They'll pretend like they didn't hear it. They'll pretend like it's not real and they'll have real trouble engaging the reality. It's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're foolish even. It's because our brains actually have a really hard time sometimes dealing with really difficult things up close and personal. What's interesting is that uh, oftentimes the way that we get to deal with those things is by moving them a little further away. And so therapists will oftentimes uh, have people role play. They'll give them like puppets or dolls and they will put their thoughts and their words into the dolls or the puppets and the dolls or the puppets will actually say the things that the people can't even say to themselves. They've moved it to a distance that is not as painful. They've moved the message across the room just a little bit further so it doesn't hurt quite as much. They've moved it to a place where they can actually hear it. Okay, the same thing is going on for Israel here. God has given them a really hard teaching. What he is telling them is that his mercy is amazing. But if you deny that mercy, you have put yourself in severe danger. What he's telling them is that his mercy is incredible and rich and broad and wide and free. But to take that mercy for granted is to put yourself in severe danger. What he's telling them is that they have heard the story over and over and over of who God is. And to deny that story is to put themselves in severe danger. But in his mercy, he's doing it in a way that they can hear, that they can understand. Friends, that is the same truth that we need to hear this morning is that God's mercy really is broad, it really is rich, it really is free, it really is deep. We see it in chapter four that it is so incredible that it can come and rescue someone even like Nebuchadnezzar. 
But the great warning that we get in chapter 5 is not to presume upon that mercy. We have heard the stories just like God's people have in the Old Testament. We have God's word revealed to us. We know the stories of redemption. We have seen them. We have read them. We have heard them. We know them. And like Belshazzar, because we know them, we are held accountable for it. Paul opens up the letter that he writes to the church in Rome with this very topic. He says, you know, when you, when you look out outside and you look at the sky and you look at the glory of a tree and you look into the face of a human being, you know there is a creator. When you wrestle with the world and how to live in it, and why some people do things that are terrible, and why others don't, you actually know that there is a judge in the world and that you need that judge. And because you know, you are held accountable. Listen just to how Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. The very clear truth of the Bible is that God's judgment will not come because of lack of knowledge, but because of lack of repentance. The clear truth from the Bible is that we do know. We just have decided to turn our hearts away. Paul goes on to say actually something very similar to what Daniel says. He says in chapter 3 that, that all of us actually fall under that judgment of God. Then what, when we are all standing before the judge, we all come up short. What the Bible proclaims is that when we see the scales and God's glory and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice are put on one side, and what it means to be people who bear the image of God is put on one side, and what it means to be followers of Christ even is put on one side when we are put on the other side of the scales. We are found to be lacking. We are found to not measure up. That is the plain and clear truth that is proclaimed in the Bible. The beginning of the good news is bad news, is that you and I do not measure up. What we need, in fact, is someone to come and stand on the scales for us. And here's the glory of the gospel, is that we don't need to be better people in order to balance the scales. We don't need to be better fathers and mothers in order to balance the scales. We don't need to be better at our work in order to balance the scales. We don't need to be better at uh, engaging in our society in order to balance those scales. There is no way that we can do in order to balance the scales there. It has to be done for us. And of course, the beautiful second half of the good news is the real good news, which is that Jesus, the judge himself, has come and placed himself on the scales, that he has stood there for us, that he has actually given us his righteousness and taken our sin. Isn't that amazing? That the judge would take our judgment and give us his justice 
that he would give us his righteousness is the greatest exchange that's ever taken place, the most unfair and unbelievable exchange that's ever taken place, and the best news that's ever been proclaimed. So how do we deal with stories of judgment? What do we do with stories of judgment? Well, here it is. Here's the answer. We run to the judge. As Paul tells us in Romans 2, God's mercy is meant to lead you to repentance. When we see the mercy of God displayed to people like Nebuchadnezzar, we are called not to harden our hearts, but to soften them, to come and to fall on our knees before the Lord, to proclaim His goodness and His mercy and His grace, and to then see Him give it so freely and so wonderfully. There is real danger in, in the times that we take that mercy and that grace for granted. But friends, there is real grace for those who fall on their knees before the Lord. If this is maybe the first time you've heard that story of, of a God so just that he would punish all sin and of a God so merciful that he would take that punishment on himself, if this is the first time you've heard that story, I'd love to talk with you more about it. Give me a call. I'll take you to lunch. We'll dig into it. And if you have been sitting in church pews or church folding chairs for all of your life, and you have heard of God's mercy over and over and over, don't be Belshazzar. Don't harden your heart. Soften it. Let it lead you to repentance. Run into the amazing and loving arms of your judge, who is also your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, even when it's hard. We're thankful for the message of justice because we want a just God. If we want a just world, we have to have a just God. We have to have a God who punishes sin. And that is what you are. But Lord, if we want life, we also have to have a God who forgives sin. And in what is the most amazing story ever told? You have forgiven our sin by taking the judgment upon yourself. Lord, let that good news lead us to repentance today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.